Hello and welcome to what should be another fun and informative iAnimate podcast. I'm your host, Larry Vasquez, and I'd like to welcome you to our 14th podcast here. We have a great guest tonight, Bill Tessier, and I'm looking forward to speaking with him. He's been an instructor here at iAnimate since we've opened up the doors. He's worked uh, at such studios as Sony, DreamWorks, and is currently working at Real Effects on their currently unreleased new movie, Turkeys, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with him about the films he's worked on, his uh, past experiences in regards to those films, and just even his workflow and how he approaches animation. So uh, let me bring him on. Bill, welcome to the uh, podcast. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks Awesome. Yeah, you bet. You bet. Looking forward to having you on this here. You've been one of our instructors since the get-go, so it'll be uh, interesting to hear your perspective. And looking at your bio, you've got actually quite a bit of movies under your belt, so I'm looking forward to hearing from you on this. Cool. All right. Let's do it. All right. (laughs) I always like to get into someone's kind of laying the foundation, so I like to always kind of hear how someone got into animation and, and maybe even why you wanted to get into it. Okay. Yeah, this is a a long story, I guess. Uh, I go back a ways. So the 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 long story is when I was in college, uh, there was one class being taught by an independent animator named Faith Hubley, who maybe some of you guys have heard of. Uh, her husband was John Hubley, who was one of the founders of UPA back in the I forget if it was the '60s, but she had been teaching at our college every year. She taught one class, and it was storyboarding. And so I, I took it. I had always had an interest in animation, but I had never heard of any classes in it before. So I took it, and it was fantastic. They just had an absolute ball doing it. And so that was my junior year in college. And then uh, senior year rolled around, and you know the question's like, well, what do you do next? So I loved animation, and so I went back to her class the following year and said, hey, are there any schools that actually teach this stuff? Like, is there any way you can can learn this? She's like, oh, yeah, there's... There's tons of them. And, and not only that, but a book's just been written about all the schools that you could potentially apply to. I was like, really? So I, I got the title of the book from her, and I immediately went to the bookstore uh, in college and, and found it. And this is where I first really learned about sort of the major schools that were out there, uh, CalArts, USC, Sheridan, UCLA. And for me, one of the things that she had done during her class was she had shown us uh, just whatever films she had. And the films that she had were either hers and her husband's or these clips from UCLA. She had a, a student reel from UCLA. And I had never seen anything like it before. It was all independent animation. So not heavily character driven by any means, definitely not Hollywood, but fascinating to me. I, I thought it was just incredible. So I applied to, uh, to various colleges And I chose to go to UCLA when I was done. And um, what was surprising to me when I got there, it it was called the UCLA Animation Workshop. And it had been around since the 50s. And it was like the best kept secret on not only on campus, nobody knew there was an animation school, (laughs) but also out there in the industry. People are like, UCLA, you can learn animation there? It's like, yeah, it's been around. It was started by a Disney animator, Bill Schull, back in the day. And... And um, the professor I had there, his name is Dan McLaughlin, and he had been there when I got there at least 20-something years, and he only recently retired, like maybe five years ago, so he was there for 30-something years. And uh, one of the great things about that program was it gave you time to do what you wanted to do. And the, the idea behind it was the theme was one person, one film. And so you had to come up with your own story idea. You had to design your own characters. You had to do everything, your own sound design, all that kind of stuff. And I really loved that. I thought that was fantastic. And um, I particularly liked the story aspects of it. But I always wanted to do character animation, too. And at the time that I was there, uh, you know, the Pixar films were coming out. So um, Toy Story had already been out. That came out when I was in college. And so... What happened was in my second year in grad school, I decided they they had an offering. They only had four SGI computers at the time, which were the high-end, you know, things that you could do serious graphics on. And they had decided for once to open it up to second-year students. Normally, they reserved them for the third-year thesis students. But they said, well, let's test it out. Is anybody interested? And I said, yeah, I'm interested. Sign me up. You know, how do I get into that? And uh, 
you know, when I got into school, though, I really thought traditional animation would be the way that I wanted to go because I was an art major in college, painting and drawing. And um, but when I saw Toy Story, I said, you know, there's something here and it's probably a good idea for me to learn this stuff now <laughs> while I can. <laughs> so so uh, I took the class in any case and I embarked on like a three year journey into making this film that I actually never ended up finishing. Um, but it was I did enough of it that I applied in my fourth year of grad school for an internship through the television academy. Uh, it was an internship in non-traditional animation, and I won. I won the position. So I went to uh, Sony Pictures Imageworks. They were the host for the uh, internship, and it just happened to be that that year they were they were just finishing up Hollow Man, so it was right around that time, and they were just getting ready to start the first Spider-Man movie, the second Stuart Little movie, and the first Harry Potter movie. And they were down to, I think, maybe 20 people in the whole animation department at the time. So they needed to staff up. And basically, by the end of my internship, they said, would you like a position? We'd like to bring you on. And I said, yeah, it'd be great. And they had at the, at the time, they had said, uh, we'll bring you on to Stuart Little 2. And I was really excited because it was probably the most heavily character-driven thing that they had. But then they changed their mind. And I got shifted on to Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which in retrospect actually was a pretty cool first movie to work on. (laughs) (laughs) It did pretty well, huh? (laughs) I think uh, at the time it broke all the box office records. So (laughs) it was, uh, it was pretty cool. I mean, looking back on it, of course it, you know, it has certain flaws as, uh, you know, I think they got better as they went on, but it was definitely an awesome film to, to start working on. So uh, and that and that was really how I got my foot in the door in the industry. Now, uh, how quickly did you transition from your internship to to be able to jump on these shots like that? Um, let's see. Well, the the internship went through the summer, and then they didn't need me till January. That was when it was starting. So I actually took a teaching position um, at Sony for that time. It was I think it was their way of sort of keeping me you know in the in the loop. Um, but yeah, then once once I got there, I mean, there was definitely ramp up time. Um, the interesting thing about visual effects, at least at the time, they didn't have quotas, or at least none that I was aware of. So, and this was how it was for me at Sony for for years, actually, for at least four years. There was uh, there was no discernible quota. You just worked on your shot until it got approved, and uh, I think that was actually really really helpful because. I kept thinking in the back of my head, well, this has to be due sometime, yeah. but no, nobody was pressuring me, you know? Someone's going to want to actually see this sometime, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But but it was great. I mean, they had a great crew of people working on it, got to, you know, work on some fun stuff, um, did some Quidditch stuff, did some of the troll in the bathroom um, stuff, and, um, you know, it, it was definitely slow ramp up. But it, it was cool because as I was as I was struggling on it myself, um, I got to look around at what everybody else was doing, and that you know that was probably the coolest thing because in school, like I said, it was it was very independent, animator driven. So there were only a few other people around me who really professed direct interest in character animation, and so we kind of you know we tried to critique each other's work, but we didn't have anybody to really guide us, you know, that wasn't really what the school focused on. And so, um, it was really when I got to work for the first time that I began to see, Oh, okay. This is how you go about really animating for features, adding in little textural details. I still remember just one shot. It was, um, my friend, uh, Derek Friesenborg was animating the troll in the bathroom and it's, it's a simple shot. It's just a camera panning up, but as it pans up, the, the troll just does a little adjust on his club. He just like flexes his hand or something. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever seen that level of detail, you know, something, something that subtle. And, you know, now you might think, yeah, what's the big deal? But for me, it was a revelation. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Detail. <laughs> <laughs> There's little light bulb moments that just go off and you think hindsight's 2020 then. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Now, how was it working from, and we'll get into your feature animation more, but I want to just kind of your perspective from working on visual effects to working on full feature animated films there. How was the transition for you? And also, what were some of the things that you were able to learn from the visual effects side that you maybe took into the feature film? Okay. The transition for me actually was a little bit rough because, it, like I said, it was, it's sort of this world when you're in visual effects, you're not always doing character-based animation. Um, you might be doing creature-based stuff. Um, some of the films I worked on was like Matrix 3, for example. It, it had the Sentinels you know, which are not really, and, and it had spaceships. So you're doing stuff that, oh, okay, it's cool, but it's not character-based, you know. And then I worked on the Polar Express, which, you know, that that was a struggle in and of itself because I kind of felt in some ways like, this is another whole discussion we can have sometime about motion capture, but, but um, on the one hand, you were learning to try and discern detail in your animation you know trying to make it as close to the the capture as possible uh, on the flip side the part of your brain that you use to actually do the character animation wasn't engaging fully because it, it was almost like you were just cleaning stuff up you know in a lot of cases so that made it a little difficult when the next film after that was open season and suddenly it's like okay here full characters go you're like, wait a minute, I haven't done that in at least a year. You know, what? <laughs> how do we do this again? Uh, and so, I mean, I, I definitely started slow on that show. And I think by the end, you know, I had ramped up and I felt like I was doing some good stuff. But it was it was definitely a difficult transition. And I, th I think that's one of the things for anybody who's starting in the industry or whatever. There, there are going to be hiccups, you know, along the way. <laughs> and you just have to be ready for them and roll with the punches, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's kind of why I was asking that because you look at, it's all animation, but like you said, they're very different in many respects. I'm, I'm looking at for your visual effects. I'm sure you're working with plates and stuff like that, that you're having to match up with at all, or how's that work? Yeah. Yeah. Like on, um, actually that was kind of cool. Cause on uh, both Harry Potter and Stuart Little, they had live, live action background plates that they shot for the whole thing. And so the, the neat thing was for us, we modified the camera as we needed to based on, the needs of the shot. This was something which later on we were never allowed to do. Like, don't touch the camera. The camera is somebody else. You don't do that. Um, but, but matching up to this live action stuff, what they ended up doing was they would build uh, some of the props, you know, in CG um, that you might have to interact with. So if he's standing on a table, they would build a surface to, of a table and they would match move it to match exactly the live action camera. Um, one of the things that was probably the most difficult that I got to do on Stuart Little. That was my last shot, and it was um, Stuart Little sort of climbs up this garbage barge and sort of reaches the top and realizes that he's been taken away from the cities on this garbage barge. But it was just junk. It was full of, like, old donuts and papers and things. And somehow somebody was given the job of trying to model that because Stuart was supposed to jump over the whole thing. And uh, they did the best they could, but no, they didn't really model it perfectly so as he was supposedly going up the hill and back in space he didn't have far enough back in space to actually travel so you had to kind of fake the physics of what you were doing to make it look like he was going back in space even though he was like standing in the same exact space but that was cool you know getting that kind of experience i think under the belt made you sort of realize that you're not always going to have something perfectly handed to you. And a lot of what we do is cheating. You're constantly hearing when you're working, like cheat it to camera, just cheat it to camera. You're like, but it won't work. No, no, no. Just cheat it to camera. You know, it'll be fine. Now let's talk a little about motion capture because that's come up quite a bit in the podcast that we've had because of our game side as well. And even from guys like Jalil Sadul that we'll have a podcast with, I know he's done some work on Avatar and stuff where they use some of the motion capture and stuff. So what was your experience working on Polar Express with the motion capture? Well, th this was probably the first, well, I would say the first big push for motion capture. I mean, they had Final Fantasy, which came out before that. But I think most people think that this was kind of what tipped the apple cart, so to speak, and, and more people started to want to do it. It, it was strange. It, it was strange. It was interesting. Um, technically speaking, it was 
challenging because, for example, in the facial animation, when you look at your character rig, maybe you're looking at something and you look at a control on your mouth and you're saying, okay, you know, corner of the mouth up, right? So you pull that and you push it up. Well, we had obicular oris number one, two, three, four, you know, everything was labeled anatomically correct. And you're like, what the heck? Obicular, what? I don't, you know, and you had to, you had to learn the terminology, you know, first of all. So that was interesting in and of itself. But then on top of that, you know, we were mandated that we had to do what Tom Hanks did, basically. Because in that film, the, the whole selling point of the film was that he performed, I think, five of the characters himself, right? So uh, he performed the main child. He did his grown-up self. He did Santa. I think he did the, um, the hobo on the train as well. And so Robert Zemeckis' deal was, I don't want you to do anything he didn't do. And it became a bit of a sticking point because the animators were trying to bring as much life as possible to these characters. And we kept getting pushback where you might put in something and say, you know what, the character's looking a little bit dead. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open his mouth here, let him, let him breathe a little bit, and then I'm going to close his mouth, you know, to keep some life in it. Or maybe add a blink or something. And um, now this was a, a client-based film where they would they would take the film and they would show the client. Robert Zemeckis was a client. So we worked on it and showed it to our immediate supervisors and, and our directing supervisor. And then he took it and showed it to Robert Zemeckis. Okay, so we were never in on those meetings. Um, but if, apparently the discussions that were had went something like, well, why, why, is, uh, why is he opening his mouth there? Like, well, you know, the animator thought maybe bring a little more life to the character who's looking a little stiff. No, 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 no. Tom Hanks didn't do that. You know, he's a he's a two-time Academy Award winner. If he, if he didn't do that, I don't want to see it in the, in the picture. So we took it out. And we took out eye blinks and we, you know, took out a lot of other stuff. Which is funny, really, because so much of what we had to do was sometimes stitching together different performances that he had. You know, like he might be walking, you know, it'd be a simple thing where he's walking down the street and then maybe he turns but they were like two different performances so you'd see the motion capture data start walking down the street and then suddenly it would pop to a different area entirely and the character would turn right and so you had to move it back in space get it to the right spot stitch it together so it looked like it was one performance and that required blowing away obviously some of the Keys. animation yeah which you know, Robert Zemeckis didn't seem to mind that. <laughs> oh, I love Robert Zemeckis. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but there obviously there is the difference from live action versus animation. Because I know we, our last podcast with Jason and Mike, we we talked a lot about reference and stuff. And one of the things that Jason was bringing up was that you're you're wanting even with your reference pushing it further than what your reference is showing for that believability and for that entertainment value yeah it's it's like you you take it to a certain level and and eventually you have to really kind of leave your reference behind you know you just you want you want to i i think one shot that i had i think was a good example of that it was a very simple shot it was a it was the young boy jumping from one train car to another it was i don't know maybe 48 frames or something really short but when i looked at the motion capture for that particular shot, it felt like a 180-pound man jumping between two trains, which it was. It was Tom Hanks. You know, he was, what could you do? So I blew away all the animation is what I did because it was it was bad. You know, it wasn't a kid. <laughs> the, the weight was all wrong. So um, so I just reanimated it, and and nobody noticed so I was happy. <laughs> but that's a very good point, though. Like you said, there's a difference in a 180-plus-pound man making a jump versus 30, 40, 50-pound kid making that jump. The center of gravity is different. The weight's different. Yeah. And so now let's get into a little bit of referencing since we're kind of on this topic here. How do you approach your shots with your workflow and using reference for characters that obviously are very different in build from you? Right. Um Generally, I'll, I'll start, I, I take a shot at the performance and uh, show it to the directors and get their feedback on it and say, okay, you know, you need, you need to push it a little bit more here or there. And if, 
if the direction is small enough and I understand where he wants me to go with it, um, I won't shoot reference again. I'll just say, okay, I'll, I'll add that in to the animation when I get there. And, um, you know, then I think what I usually do is just take a first pass, just looking at my reference, sort of grabbing the key storytelling moments out of it and saying, you know, what, what's, what's the, what's the storytelling pose, you know, first, second, third, fourth, you know, and I go through the whole shot that way. And then after I've done that, I go back in and I say, okay, let me, let me try and figure out the breakdown poses now. Like where, where can I pull those from? So I, I do a pass like that, just looking exactly at my reference. Maybe after I do a breakdown pass on it, I might then look at the timing of it and say, okay, I want this area to be a little bit faster. So I'll just kind of shift the keys in time a little bit at this point. Um, so I, I work on some timing stuff there and then I'll go back and by this time it's kind of fleshed out more, you know, and then I'll really look at it and say, okay, am I getting it physically right for the character? You know, is because I'm, I don't know, 180, 190 or whatever. So if, if the character is, is a lot smaller than me, obviously it's going to be lighter. It might move a little faster if it's, if it's heavier than me. Um, which we had in Turbo, uh, the, one of the characters was much bigger, you know, then you, you sort of try and, and add extra weight to the, to the character, you know? Um, and so I, I do think there's, there's a certain point that you get to where you say, okay, I've used my reference as much as I can right now. Now let me put on the animator's glasses and say, what does it need? You know, what does it need to become more true to the character in the shot? So that's great because that was one of the things I've I've actually struggled with in the past is being able to kind of let go of my reference now and just be able to stop looking at it and wanting to lean upon it too much, you know. So that's yeah. definitely very cool to hear from you guys. I think too, like you let it go, but then on the flip side, there might be little details you want to get where you're like, oh, how how would he do that? Uh, like right now I'm looking at the camera here and I'm touching my forehead, which is kind of a cool action. Um, but, you know, that little detail, like how would you get that? Maybe you would shoot a little bit of additional reference if that was something that you wanted to do. Um, I, I remember there was one one shot in Turbo that my, my coworker was working on and he just was not getting this one section. And so he went to his supervisor and he said, can you just act it out for me? It was just this little tiny section of a, a big shot. And so he, he acted out that thing and, and brought it in and completely put it right into a shot and it made it, you know, perfect, beautiful. So. so from your workflow, once you've been able to kind of start putting in your breakdowns, looking at this character for who this character is, how does your shot continue from there for your workflow? I do tend to do more in the graph editor now than I had done previously. I think what I've found is that it helps me to move a little quicker, for one thing. I don't know. It's a toss-up on any given day. I kind of go back and forth. But I do find that if you can really nail your your storytelling poses and your breakdowns and you kind of get the, the general flow of it going, I find it easier just to jump into the cleaning up of it and uh, I can arrive at a, an end solution faster. Um, and it's funny, too, because, I mean... You asking me about this, it makes me think of different techniques that different people use. And one of our supervisors, Dan Wagner at DreamWorks, he is very much all about layering his animation and using the graph editor. Or at least I'm pretty sure he uses the graph editor to, to do his animation. And you know it because when he's talking to you about how to tweak something, he's like, yeah, give it a little more RZ here and uh, you know a little bit RY. And, uh, and you know exactly what he's talking about. But it's just funny that that's how he approaches it uh. rather than say tilt the head a little bit more you know and maybe open the eyes you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's um, for kung fu panda right yeah and he was on turbo as well he was one of the leads on that but that i mean in a way that's kind of how i've been approaching it lately I, i'll like i said i'll get the animation up to a certain level and then i'll just kind of what I, what i like to do is i start with the spine so i i grab i have a, a selection of controls that basically include the head the neck the chest, maybe there's like a, what do you call it, a lumbar region control, and then maybe the root or the hips or whatever any, like where I am now, they call it the hips, other places call it the root, it's the part that moves the main upper body around. But uh, I'll kind of go through and I'll do a pass, at least 
in sections. Maybe sometimes I'll go through the whole shot, but I'll do a pass on the spine and just make sure that the spine is doing what it should be doing at any given point. And then I'll kind of work outward to the extremities. So um, once I get the spine doing what it does, maybe I'll go in and I might, uh, I don't know if it's a running shot, maybe I'll address the legs. Um, and then maybe last of all, I'll go into the arms. But, you know, all the while, those storytelling poses are still there. So it's not like you don't know what the arms are sort of going to be doing. You know, you've blocked in their storytelling poses. So you, you have that reference to, to always keep in mind. You know where you're going from there. Yeah, it's not like I've, I've got just the body and I don't see the arms. You know, if I, I want to see the arms, I can turn them on and see what they're supposed to be doing. So I can make sure that the, the body is doing what it needs to do. Do you use IK or FK arms? Uh, depends. If, if In my mind, if the character is not holding anything or leaning on something, I tend to use FK arms. And as soon as he touches something or is holding somebody's hand or something like that, then uh, I usually go to IK arms. But even within that, like if, if he's holding a prop, I've done it two ways. If it's a small prop, something like a ball, something that isn't so heavy that it might make the arm lean over, you know, I'll tend to constrain the prop to the hand and then allow FK to drive the arm. But if it's a bigger thing, like maybe something like a gun, you know, where they need both hands on it, what I've done in the past, and I kind of like this, is is to actually put both hands in IK, constrain them to the gun, and then I just animate the gun. Oh, okay. And I, I just find that a little easier because the arcs are a lot simpler. In the past, again, I've parented the gun to the uh, torso so that it moves along with the body, and then you just have to worry about what the angle of it is as it moves along. Oh, that's cool. Has your workflow and animation changed throughout the years? No, I mean, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> How was it maybe uh, earlier stages versus where maybe where it's at now? Well, the very first time when I started on Harry Potter, I was doing everything keyframe straight from my imagination. That was all I had. I didn't even do video reference at the time. There was no, <laughs> it wasn't that long ago, but I feel like it was, you know, eons because <laughs> we didn't have something called YouTube. You know, we, <laughs> we didn't have uh, digital video cameras nobody had an iphone there was no way to get stuff you know instantaneously so sure if you wanted a camera if you wanted to film yourself you shot it on vhs and you'd put it in the the vcr and you would stop frame through it if you wanted to see it but that was such a bother most of us would just stand up from our chair we'd move around we'd do the action that needed to be done and we'd try and pay attention to how it happened and then we'd sit down again and we'd say okay you know this is where the keyframes need to be this is and you know and you just mess around and move it around till it finally works um so that was how i did all that stuff um really through i think open season was the first time that i really diligently tried to use my own video reference and and that was just my call i just decided you know what i think i can get better results if i actually see myself doing it on video and i think by that time they actually did have a little setup for us they had a little mini dv cam that you could, um, I think you could shoot to a, a system that would let you cut it in Premiere, and you could you could make a little quick time that you could bring back to your desk. So, um, so I remember doing that on open season, and uh, again we we talked about um, uh, Polar Express. That was that was really something else entirely. Like I said, that's a whole other conversation because that's cleaning up motion capture data. But yeah, after open season, I went to, uh, well, that was when I went to DreamWorks. And so I came in on Flushed Away. And there still wasn't actually much of a push for video reference um, at the time. And so on Flushed Away, it was, again, all keyframe stuff that I just, I just you know, thought it would look good. And I loved working on Flushed Away. I was going to ask about that one. Yeah. Go ahead. You, well, I came in for the last three months. Like that, that was when I was hired in. And so it was fresh, it was new, and it had the fastest rigs I had ever used, which, I mean, it's not like they were super fast. It wasn't like video game fast, but they were fast compared to what I had just come off using on open season. And I was thrilled. I was like, oh, wow, interactivity, and I can get my ideas down. And 
I could actually see where it was going, so I felt good. Um, and then, uh, but most of the other people had been on that show for two years, and there had been some deletion of characters. They really changed the story heavily, and so some characters were just completely gone out of the movie. And so some people that worked on that, understandably, six months of their life gone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was... It was fun for me. I enjoyed the characters. I thought I thought it was a fun film when it came out. It was cartoony, you know. It was silly. It didn't take it seriously, you know. I love the frogs in that picture. I never got to work on those, but <laughs> <laughs> that was one movie where I didn't know a whole lot about it. But after I ended up watching it, was very very surprised and really enjoyed it. I had that same kind of thing. Just it didn't take itself serious, and it was just a lot of fun to watch. Very um, snappy in its timing and stuff. Completely different than some of the other stuff you had done prior, like you said, Polar Express and stuff. Was that a big change for you? And as far as adapting to that, or how did that work for you? Well, you know, the 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 body animation was not so different. I mean, that that was more just timing issues. You just timed them a little bit differently. But what was different for me was the lip sync because the lip sync they really wanted to make feel like Ardman animation, which is poppy, right? It's it's basically every two frames. Uh, when they do their stop motion. So they, they decided, we're just going to animate every two frames, and it's going to be stepped curves, and you're going to pop from one mouth to the other. And um, that took a little bit of getting used to, because you're like, well, what do you mean pop? You just want to, like, you don't want any in-betweens? Like, it just seemed a little bit unreal coming from Polar Express or whatever, where you had to try and get exactly what was coming out of somebody's mouth on every single frame. So... I, th I found it kind of liberating, actually. The animation on the mouths was that was in stepped curves, so it, it would just pop from from one to the other every two frames. And I loved the, I loved how it looked, you know, when it when it was done. Um, sometimes, I mean, they'd throw in a, a single frame in between. Now, you worked on B movie. Now, uh, Monsters vs. Aliens that was a big one that a lot of you guys had worked on, where Jason kind of pulled you guys in for iAnimate. I know that was one of the movies that you guys had worked on before we had started iAnimate. Is that something you'd worked on quite heavily with Jason? Um, not directly, like not with him as my supervisor. I think until the very end. I think I had a few shots with him at the very end. But that was where I first got to know him because he came to the studio at that time for that movie. So, um, yeah, he came in and he was doing these shots and we're like, who's doing these things? These are great. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so I was like, Hey, I'm Bill. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> but no, he, I remember there was, I, th I think it was him that was my supervisor on this. There was one shot at the very end of the movie that was, um, again, not, not much, uh, acting per se, but it, it was the insectosaurus sort of flying in at the very end. And he just sort of takes this lazy flight path through the sky and then lands, and everybody jumps off his back. But um, one neat thing, one nice thing that Jason said at the time was like, yeah, you really got the weight of, of Insectosaurus in that shot. And I, I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, oh, really? Oh, well, thank you. And, but, then, but then I looked at some of the surrounding shots, and I, and I realized what he meant, that you know, it seemed like while people were animating the character, they weren't really specifically thinking about the weight that a Godzilla-sized character should have, <laughs> you know? So, um, so I mean, I felt really good about that, you know, that he, he saw that in that particular shot. But, um, but yeah, we, we got to talking after that, and, and, you know, when they started talking about iAnimate, I got really, really excited because I've always been interested in teaching as well as, as doing, you know, this animation. I think... Part of that comes from just the way that I got into the whole business, you know, just my personal struggle since I never really specifically had somebody that was there to teach me, you know, the character side of things. I've just been picking pieces up here and there as I go and, you know, really relying on friends and mentors and, and uh, you know, when I got to work, you know, relying on feedback from people like that. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that I want to give back. So what have, you, what have you been enjoying most about teaching here at iAnimate? Well, I think, obviously, getting to see the, the talent sort of that comes in. I mean, I, I teach the intro class, and then I also teach a uh, facial animation class. So workshop one and four? 
one and four. Right, right. And I've been doing one since the very beginning, and I really like doing workshop one. And one of the reasons is because you you get to see people at their earliest stage, you know, really, and you you get to help them sort of make those little discoveries that they've probably been struggling with for a long time and it's just never quite clicked. So you get to, you get to be there when those those uh, little aha moments happen, which is, which is great. Do you feel like your struggle, since you've not had something like that, has that helped you been a little bit more patient maybe with students coming in like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because for me, I always I always understand I remember what it was like for myself. Right. That's I what just, I'm getting at. I just, yeah. Yeah. I just didn't get it. And I didn't know how to get it. You know, and there was no way to help me get it. So I would struggle and struggle and struggle. And and uh, you know, then when somebody finally did say, Oh yeah, you just do this, I was like, Oh, thank you. You know, um, so so definitely, um sometimes you just wish you could give so much more. You know, because you would love to to get into everybody's file and say, see, you know, you can do it this way. You get in there, you change these curves, you do this. But but it's impossible, unfortunately, to, to do that for everybody. So what I try and do is to, if I can, sort of pick a representative example. And I, I use Digicel heavily to draw over people's work. And I hope that helps. You know, mo- most people give pretty good feedback on that. I've watched some of your lectures where you've done that. I think that's a big, big help. You aren't just talking about it. You're actually now pointing to it and they can actually see the difference now when you're, I remember one of them was with tots and you're showing the arcs and stuff and you can actually, okay, now I see it. You know, you're not just telling somebody to do this, particularly in those early workshops where those concepts are still really new when you're talking about overlap and look at the way this flows there and you're going, okay, I I understand what you're saying, but I'm not getting it yet. So yeah, I think yeah. that's way cool that you use Digicel quite heavily for that. Yeah, and and I mean one of the things I really like about that particular tool is um, the ghosting feature. Like you can you can see basically the five preceding or previous keyframes, and um, I use that all the time, especially like you mentioned with the TOTS assignments, where it's this is where people are first learning about spacing, and sometimes you can tell they just they don't really think about they don't think they're doing anything wrong. And, and they're not aware. They're like, well, I put my, my storytelling pose down here on the ground, and there's a storytelling pose in the air, and I've got a few in-betweens between them. It, it should work. But what they don't realize is how when your spacing is off, you suddenly get this staccato behavior that you know doesn't look good. So by, by using the ghosting tool, they can see very clearly, like, oh, it's out of arc, especially when I, when I point it out, you know, when I draw it, and I say, this is where it should be. They're like, oh, okay, you know. And I, I like saving those files so that people can go back and, and look at them if they want to um, uh, afterwards. So. so they get to keep that stuff and be able to reference back through that, right? Yeah, yeah, if they want to. That's they, fantastic. They... Now, How to Train Your Dragon, Kung Fu Panda, those have been very successful movies. Was, was there things that on those movies that you felt like you really grew on, learned on? worked with somebody on that you just felt like I got something off of those movies. I know talking with Jason and Mike, when they got to work on crudes, uh, getting to work with someone like James Baxter and uh, getting to take stuff from them it was on some of these movies here, how to train your dragon, Kung Fu Panda stuff that you got that you pulled away from having worked on those ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this was kind of tie into, I never really finished the other question you had asked, but my work process, the way it developed, I think uh, how to train your dragon was a big, turning point for me um, in terms of the use of video reference um, because I went into that movie thinking you know I'll just keep doing what I had been doing which had been working up to that point um, but they they were very very adamant about wanting people to use video reference and this was the first time that this for me was being brought up in such a clear way like this is how we want you to do it um, and I think I I think I didn't really rebel, but I thought, well, why are they pushing this so heavily? You know, what's what's the point? Like, what are we doing wrong? You know, why do we need this? And um, now this is all in retrospect, right? At the time, I mean, my, my mind was, you know, not perceiving these things consciously. But what I did realize by the end of the movie was that we were getting much more unique performance by following the video reference. 
Christoph Sarand, who was the lead on The Dad. What was his name? Stoic. Stoic. He liked to look at the reference that of the actor, Gerard Butler, who, who you know, shot it. And he was constantly pulling just little moments. Like there's, there's this one shot I remember where Stoic says, Odin, it was rough. You know, and he kind of looks to heaven, he holds out his hands. And that was taken right from, from the video reference, you know. And um, they were, he turned that into character traits. And, and Jakob Jensen, who did um, uh, Hiccup, you know, he was doing the same thing with his own video reference. He, you know, I think by the end of that movie, he really found out who Hiccup was. You got to remember that the, that movie was done basically in eight months, like from beginning to end, as far as the animation goes. And, you know, it just had a rough starting period. So we only had eight months in the end to get it done. So they were developing the characters as we were animating it. And I think that I found that to be a little bit rough because I didn't know who the characters were. And people were coming back to me saying, well, you got to change that because that's not on model or that's not the character. Like, well, who is the character? <laughs> <You know? laughs> Has anybody actually defined it yet? And, you know, it, it was very, very fluid. Like, you, you really had to go with the flow and, and try and figure it out as you went. But the upshot of it all was I really learned the value of video reference. Um, and not just for people, but, you know, the people doing the dragons, they were looking at um, different animals. You know, like uh, eagles and bats were really heavily referenced um, for, you know, the, the raptors and things. I don't know about snakes. Those probably weren't so much. But bulldogs for the gronkle, you know, stuff like that. Uh, frogs. <laughs> yeah, there, there's one There's one thing where the, the little one, can't remember, the tiny terror, he, he licks his eyeball. And, I mean, that's that's taken from a lizard. Lizards do that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I, I really learned from that the, the value of doing video reference. And I did try to make that part of my... Uh, workflow from then on and one of the neat things about it and that became very clear because people had to move so fast in their animation um, they showed their video reference to the directors Chris Sanders and Dean DeBlois and the people that showed their reference could get a buy-off on the performance really quickly because they would look at the the reference and they'd say okay take this motion from take one and take this motion from take two and slam them together. And that's what we want. And so they knew exactly what they had to do when they went back to their desk, as opposed to me, like when I was starting on the show, they'd say, you know, I'd show them blocking, which is just animation, no video reference. And they'd say, yeah, it's not quite what we're looking for. And then you say, okay, so what do you want? don't really know you know let's try something else and so it was harder but i could have made my life a lot easier if i had just gotten in front of a camera and you know shot some different takes and shown it to them so anyway this sort of rolls over into another realization i had when um it wasn't really on kung fu panda the second one but there was a there was a holiday special that i worked on between those two movies and i really loved working on the holiday special and uh, one of the one of the directing animators or supervising animators that I worked with was Shaggy Hornby, and he was the one who made me see that there's a difference between stage acting and the kind of acting that we need in our animation. Okay, a genuine performance, if you will, because what I had been doing, I had been shooting video reference up till then. But it was very much stage acting. It was broad gestures, you know, something that could be seen out deep in the audience. And I didn't think anything of it. I was like, well, this is just how I, how I act and why is this not good? And he said, because it's not genuine. It's not subtle enough. And he really helped me to see that you want to go for something that is believable. You, you want somebody, it doesn't have to be realistic but it has to be believable and genuine to the situation that you're in. Does that give you your foundation then to be able to um, push it further for that entertainment value? You're at least grounded in something that's believable versus yeah. going broad first and trying to tone it down? Yeah, I mean, I, I think different people have different strengths too. You know, this is where casting comes in. So if you want, 
huge comedy and super broad stuff. I mean, there are some animators that that is their forte, and so you give it to them. But for what I would call sort of the the average acting scenes throughout the throughout the show, I mean, yeah, that that's what I would definitely call sort of your baseline. Do your do your performance, and then exaggerate where needed, and arrive at your final result from that. I think that's been working for me pretty well. Now, you're currently working on turkeys for real effects, right? Yes. Same Although one. now I think it's called Freebirds. <laughs> Freebird? Okay. Yeah. All right. Did they changed the title. <laughs> Freebirds. All right. Now, that's one that Mike Walling's working on, too. And he mentioned, because kind of going back to your reference, almost as your first pass of blocking, because he's mentioned that for the studio here, that your reference has become basically your first pass, that they want to see reference first. Is that correct with yeah, what you've dealt definitely. with? Yeah, and and the reason for that in our particular case is they're trying to do the movie very very quickly, and um, the the director is actually he's the director from Horton Hears a Who. His name's Jimmy, and he is from animation, so he understands where people will go simply by either looking at the reference or, and this is great, looking at a blocking pass. He understands a blocking pass, which a lot of directors who haven't come up as an animator, maybe they're a storyboard artist or something, they don't necessarily understand, well, how will you take a blocked animation to final animation, you know? So it's great that, that Jimmy is able to simply look at our video reference and say, yes, go for it, you know? And they're like, all right, great. Trust you enough as an artist to be able to run with it and finish it. Yeah. The other cool thing about it is they want to see your work early and often is what they say. So when they say, here's your shot, they want you to go out, shoot your video reference, come back ideally that afternoon, show them the video reference, have them say yes or no. Uh, you go away, you either shoot new reference or you, you got a yes and you start your blocking. And so what what's cool about it, they really don't care what stage your animation is in. I mean, they want you to make progress on it, obviously. But if you feel you need to show it to get some kind of feedback, they want you to show it. And the idea is because they don't want you to go down the wrong road for a long period of time and then have to do a 180, come back, redo something that was wrong. So I, I find that really, really cool. Um, it, it helps you to move a lot faster. And you also don't feel pressured to, um, like when you show it, it doesn't have to be exactly right. They know you're going to keep working on it. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> is that hard to get past at first, though? Because I, I know sometimes wanting to show something that you know is not where it's supposed to be yet, it's you're like, no, I'm still going to work on this part here and ignore this part here. And so it seems like it's sometimes hard to get past that initial stage of going, even done at a stage that feels like I can show it yet, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the, I think the neat thing, one of the things that takes the edge off of that, in our case, when you submit your, your work, there's a little field that you can type in for caveats or, or warnings, you know, about the shot. And and then it posts it right on your play blast. So as they're playing it in little red letters under there, it's saying like, the hands look terrible and I know, you know? <laughs> <Or something>. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm getting to that later on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I fully intend to fix that foot that goes through his ear, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Now, it seems like um, them having to, like you said, work on it in such a short amount of time, they've had to develop methods or workflows just to be able to keep on track. What's that idea of working smarter, not harder, you know, in that that regards there? Right, right. I think a lot of that is this this video reference idea, you know, using that as your baseline. But they also, you know, they try and give you multiple shots at the same time so that you're never waiting for one shot to be approved or something before you can move on to a new one. And I find that great. Like my personal workflow, as far as that's concerned, and I found myself doing this a lot at DreamWorks, we use Linux systems. They have different desktops that you can hop between and each desktop can have different applications open on it at the same time. So I'll actually have three shots open in Maya on three different desktops. And when I get to a certain point on one, I say, okay, play blast. That takes a while. So I let it play blast and I hop onto another shot and I start working on that one. And then when I get to the point on that one where I'm good, I say play blast and I hop back to the other shot and I keep working on that one. And so 
I've had um, I've had times where I've had three or four shots, and I just I work on them that way, and I find myself actually getting both shots done in a decent amount of time that way. You know, there's like almost no downtime because I'm not sitting around waiting for a play blast to finish. Do you feel like it keeps you fresh having to jump from a shot to a shot? You don't feel like you're on a shot too long where it's kind of draining you, you kind of keep it fresh, or do you like seeing a shot more to completion before you jump on another one? Well, by my nature, I would love to see the shot through to completion because I, I hate like taking myself away from it. And that's that's a trap. That it's it's an awful, awful thing that I do. Because I I my my personality, I just focus on details to the nth degree and they really bug me when they're not right and I just stay on it and try and fix it, fix it, fix it. So it really is a trap. I end up taking much longer sometimes than I should on some shots because of that. So this idea of bouncing between shots, yes, definitely does keep me focused, like saying, okay, just fix the eyebrows, you know, just get those working. And if you, if you need to see how they look, then play blast it and go back to your other shot and start working on that one and get something else going. So, um, yeah, it, it does help me to avoid the trap. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because Ken Fountains actually asked one time, one of the classes that I was in with him, where he asked, is it difficult to work on a shot for seven weeks for the acting ones? And for me, I'm the same kind of way. I I want to be tenacious. I want to see this thing to the end. So for me, I'm going, if it's not done, I don't care if it's been seven weeks or not. I want to finish this thing, you know? So, yeah. uh, but sometimes, you're, like you're saying there, you could fall in that trap where you aren't concentrating on the things that need to be done and, and kind of sculpting out details, so to speak, versus missing the whole Big picture, I guess. Yeah. And what, one of the things that I've, I've taken to doing, you hear about people who are list makers, and um, I don't generally think of myself that way, but I have found that when I'm really getting close to finaling a shot, what really helps me is to just sit there and watch the shot a few times and to write down everything that I see that's wrong with it. The, the things that I really, really want to hit before I say, okay, yeah, it's final. Um and I find that helps me tremendously because literally I can then go down the checklist and if I have one day to finish it, I can say, okay, I've got to do all these things this day. What is the most important? And I can, I can say, all right, I'm going to hit, you know, all the head stuff needs to be smoothed out. All right, I'm going to do that. And, and you get to cross it off the list, which feels so good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Completed something today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you're done, you see this paper that you can crumple up and throw away. It's great. Um, but it really does help me to stay focused on, on, you know, what you need to do to complete the task, get it done in the time that you have. Doesn't always work, but it definitely has saved me a few times. Nice. Very nice. What has been some of your favorite characters to work on? Huh? Well, trying to think back over the course of all the films. Well, Poe is definitely cool. Um, you know, I think the reason I liked him so much was because of how appealing he was as a character. As a, as a character model, he was very, very appealing. You know, they, they designed him very, very well. Um, that's not always going to be the case when you're, when you're working on an animated film. You know, um, not to name names or anything, but looking back over the course of the, the films, you know, there are definitely times where you're working on what they call generic characters, and they, they don't spend the time on those that they might spend on a main character. And so you're working with what can only be described as ugly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but your, your job is to make it as appealing as possible. And so you, you try, but it's, it's very, very difficult. But then you take something like Poe, which is designed appealing to begin with. It's just a breath of fresh air. You're like, I, I can do no wrong. Yeah. You know, <laughs> looks great from any angle. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can still do wrong, and I'm sure right. you do, but, um, but that was cool. And uh, I actually enjoyed what little work I did on the actual dragons in How to Train Your Dragon. I had a few shots with some dragons in it, and I did enjoy that as well. In that movie, I, I touched pretty much almost every main character. I mean, the, the kids, you know, I did, did shots with a lot of the kids in there together, Um I did have a number of gobber shots, and he, he was pretty cool. Actually, I liked working on him a lot. But he, again, was somebody who they were trying to find out who this character was. And I think, I think when I started on it, I didn't really know who the character was or how he was supposed to be animated. And so maybe I went a little broader than they, they had hoped he would be. Um, so 
yeah, that was kind of a learning process for me, just like tone it down, bring it back kind of thing. Um, what about Lord Shin? I saw on your demo reel. Oh, Lord Shin, yeah. Yeah. Oh, he was he was different. He was well, he was a peacock for one thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he seemed like you would really cool to animate on. Yeah. No, he he was um we worked with Pierre Parafel and uh Pierre was was great. Um he really knew what he wanted for that particular character. I I think for me on Kung Fu Panda 2, like I was I was on that show and I was off that show. Like I cycled on and off of that one. And uh, so that made it actually a little bit difficult to get into the characters, per se. Because I remember there was one time I was working with Pierre on one shot, and I was like, well, how do you do this with this particular character? He's like, oh, you use these controls. I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, that helps. So then, But then I went away, and then I came back, and I got another shot with, with Shen. And so I started animating him using those controls, and then Pierre came back and said, uh, oh, you know, it's not quite working. I was like, well, I use these these controls like oh yeah no i don't use those anymore <laughs> <laughs> I was like oh well yeah it, it had something to do with the way the head and the neck work together so uh you know to kind of get that bird walk kind of thing uh so I, it's it's always a learning process and and uh i i think for myself too it's it's the controls that a character have i i feel really define that character as well like if you if you don't have the controls that you need to get a certain performance that you want i find that somewhat frustrating (laughs) (laughs) um and and and, you know nobody can account for everything you want to do so you're going to run into that sometimes um but but no he was he was a cool character and and uh you know i think he evolved dramatically over the course of the movie you know, not not over the course of the movie, but over the course of making the movie, he started as a very different character. And I remember, I remember, the, you know, they always ask us for ideas. You know, they'll they'll show a screening and they'll say, hey, "Please write your ideas down and send them into the the main uh, story hub." You know, where where they'll read them and they'll take what they want and they'll throw away what they don't want. And um, I remember Shen was he was a sick weakling when they started like that was basically his his whole character and he stayed a sick weakling through most of the movie and it wasn't until really close to the end i think guillermo del toro took a look at it and said you know what he's got to be he's got to be a bad guy you know he's not he's not coming across as a bad guy so they made him this kick-ass you know martial arts knife dude and it worked you know it suddenly worked and uh all of us breathed a sigh of relief because you know we were all sitting there saying i don't know about this sick sick bird how are we going to make this a believable villain but they did so are there any particular shots that you feel like you draw style wise closer to action sincere humor are you you like a broad range um i i hit little bits of all of that in in my own work but I would say every time I'm given a shot that's supposed to be funny, I kind of cringe on the inside. I don't feel very comfortable with that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's weird because I'll see somebody else's shot and I'll I'll say, you know, what if he did this? This would be really funny. And they're like, yeah, that'd be great. You know, it'd be awesome. Um, Dave Weatherly, who is a co-worker of mine, we worked on Monsters vs. Aliens together. He is great at comedy. He does amazing comedy. And uh, there was this joke at the end of Monsters vs. Aliens that we actually developed together. Um, he, it was his shot. It was totally his shot, and he did all the animation. But there was this moment where Susan was supposed to be putting down her boyfriend. Uh, I can't even remember his name. Derek? Derek, yeah. And, and uh, Bob comes back in and starts berating Derek and saying, you know, I'm over you and whatever. And that and that was the shot basically. That was how it started. And we were looking at it, and we were talking about the animation. And I was like, you know, it would be awesome if he could bring back that Jello. <laughs> you know, that would just be fantastic. And 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 Dave started being like, yes, we have to do that. You know, the the biggest problem was that the Jello wasn't rigged to do anything. Like if you if you what we wanted to do, he he really wanted to shake it under Derek's 
face, you know, under his nose. And so it needs to be able to wobble. But there was nothing... All you need is a little three-bone chain, you know, if you're in Maya, and you can do it with a, a lattice or something in two seconds. But uh, at the time, the software was not capable of doing that at DreamWorks. They'd, they'd have to send it to the rigging department, get it all done. So he knew somebody, and he managed to get it done. And I think it, it totally made that shot. Oh, yeah. It just made it a hilarious thing. So I was really happy that that worked out for him, and I, I think that's one of the really super fun shots they did. But but for myself, like I said, I... I I feel like I can give suggestions to other people to make things funny, but I don't feel like I'm very good at doing funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> you need <laughs> like something I, to branch off of, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Um, I, I think give me a serious shot, you know, or something, or uh, something a little more dramatic. Um, I don't mind trying it. I just don't feel comfortable doing it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, it's funny because I remember reading about, you know, Glenn Keane said that, many years too that he doesn't he doesn't like to do the funny shots you know he he prefers the more staid you know more serious kind of stuff and uh so hey if i can follow in his footsteps that's not bad <laughs> steps to follow cool. in huh yeah <laughs> <laughs> very cool bill well, i definitely appreciate your time and having you on here and it's been a lot of fun so i really do appreciate it thank you so much for interviewing me it's really great to be here do it again sometime. That's right. Maybe after your next one, Freebirds, maybe have you and Mike on there. Well, that'd be cool. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Larry. Bye. Bye-bye.